VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, May the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning. Of course we are. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. Well, one more sleep before we get to go to Mary Brown Center, watch the Growlers host the Florida Everblades in the next round of the playoffs. Get your ticks. All right, I don't know how many of you stayed up late like me to watch the Battle of Alberta. Edmonton versus Calgary in the playoffs. Hasn't happened since 1991. Some of the commentators say it's going to be a really close, tight checking series. Yeah, 9 6. <laughs> 9 6 in favor of Calgary last night. Boy, oh boy. And Dawson Mercer and Team Canada, they face off against Kazakhstan uh, this afternoon over in Finland at the Men's World Ice Hockey Championships. want to say a hearty congratulations to Leah Wicks. Leah Wicks is a defense pl- uh, defenseman, she plays defense, for the Tricom Thunder under 15 AAA female team. She's on her way to Shattuck St. Mary's, one of the most prestigious prep schools for hockey players in the United States, always ranked amongst the top 10 with some of the classics Salisbury, Avon Old, Phillips Andover, and yes, Shattuck St. Mary's. So congratulations to Leah. That is pretty exciting stuff to get to go play at Shattuck St. Mary's. Okay, let's hop in the pool. I want to say one more time, congratulations to three particular swimmers that broke a bunch of provincial swimming records in the recent past. Abby Williams did it four times. She broke the uh, record for the 15 to 17 year old females in the 50 meter backstroke. Then she won it in the she broke the record in the uh, 200 individual medley. Then in the 50 meter fly, and then she broke her own record again in the 200 individual medley. So way to go to Abby Williams and Chris Weeks. He broke a couple himself in the 15 to 17 male open 50 fly record uh same age category 50 free record and joel thomas out of mount pearl swimming for the marlins in the 13 to 14 category age category he broke the record in the 50 breast good stuff there quality uh and a quick one today in history dale long it was today back in what year 1956 yes dale long uh broke a major league record hit a home run in eight consecutive games Man, that is unbelievable. He broke the mark, so he hit, there was a doubleheader. He bro- hit a home run on both ends of the doubleheader. The previous record was six straight games. Get a load of these names. Lou Gehrig, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, and Dale Long broke the record. Back in 1956, eight in a row. Pretty cool stuff. All right, what's this little scribble? Oh, so... Here comes the long weekend. I don't know how active the travel will be for all the obvious reasons with the cost of touching everything in this world. But it was 111 years ago today, in 1911, that the world's first National Park Department, Parks Canada, was established. That's five years before its counterpart in the United States. Parks Canada manages 48 national parks, three national marine conservation areas, 172 national historic sites, one national urban park, one national landmark. The mandate is to protect and present nationally significant examples of Canada's natural and cultural heritage and foster public understanding, appreciation and enjoyment in ways that ensure their ecological and commemorative integrity for present and future generations. Parks Canada. Just for some interesting tidbits here. 
The largest national park in the country is Wood Buffalo National Park, and many people from this province originally would be living in Wood Buffalo National Park, Fort McMurray. The park is 44,741 square kilometers, straddles the border between Alberta and the Northwest Territories. That park is larger than the country of Denmark. Established back in 1922 to protect the last herd of wood bison, also the home to the only natural nesting site for whooping cranes. It's a uh, World Heritage Site established back in 1983. So Wood Buffalo Park, 44,741. Jasper National Park, where I spent some of my time, 10,878. For comparison, Terranova National Park, 399 square kilometers, only when compared to those big parks. Grossmoor, 1,805 square kilometers. Parks Canada established back in 1911. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the fact that the Archdiocese of St. John's is having to sell off its assets, and there's a lot of concerned folks out there. One thing that probably hasn't been on the front burner here, you know, people will talk about cemeteries, what happens if I lose my church, but how many food banks are located in churches? Just inside the St. Vincent de Paul Society, they operate four out-of-Catholic churches, St. Peter's and Mary Queen of the World in Mount Pearl, Corpus Christi and St. Teresa's here in St. John's. So what happens if those properties are sold and the food banks are displaced? We know just how many families are reliant on food banks. And we talk every now and then about food insecurity, access to food, and the cost of food. But for so many families here, and the numbers are growing daily, what happens if St. Vincent de Paul is displaced? These are some of the big life questions. Yes, the compensation must be afforded to the victims at Mount Cashel, but there's just another bit, you know, between the schools that were formerly owned by the archdiocese and the food banks operating out of these churches, I wonder what becomes of them. And maybe we should touch base with the folks at uh, St. Vincent de Paul and see what they have to say. Sandra, uh, Sandra Milmore is the president of that particular society. Anyway, just another bit. So, well, you know, price of gas went up again. I don't know what to say anymore. I know it's impacting everything that people touch and do. It's gone up over three cents per liter overnight. Some other prices of fuels that were on the move. Diesel dropped almost four cents a liter, increased one point uh, on the island, increased about a cent and a half in Labrador. And then some of the big ones. Stove oil up 29 cents a liter in Labrador. Furnace oil dropped 3.3 cents a liter across the province. And again, we know that there's going to be some amendments to the Petroleum Pricing Act. So we'll know it gets a justification of public hearings. But once more, uh, as Boyd Merrill points out, knowing how the cake is made, how the recipe works, doesn't make it any easier or palpable when we go to fill up. And I really do wonder, like I've heard people tell me, I would normally be traveling around the province, and now I cannot simply do it because I cannot afford it. And here comes a long weekend, which would have absolutely seen the highways a bit busier than in other weekends, but maybe not this go-around, and if you want to tackle it, we can do it. Interestingly, the province, uh, Premier Fury speaking to members of the media yesterday, talking about looking at ways to help and to save us some money at the pumps. I'm a little tiny bit confused about this, though, to be honest. If there's a move made on the provincial gas tax, about 14.5 cents, that it might trigger, it's not automatic, but it is there that the federal government may indeed kick in additional tax based on whatever our bilateral agreement looked like on carbon tax, which, of course, is 11 cents a liter at this moment in time. Not 100% sure how and why that works. But if it, if it does indeed kick in, then we'll see some other industries paying the carbon tax as well, uh, the, in the fishery and in agriculture. So how did that deal actually even look? 
what would be the obligation of the federal government to impose further taxation in this province if the province, which has no impact on federal coffers, dealt with its own gas tax component or portion of the overall cost of a liter of fuel? So apparently there's some negotiations on, on the go on that front, but I'm not really quite sure how that would be set up. I don't know. Anyway, so th- they tell us one more time that they're working towards something. And, of course, the opposition parties would like to know a little bit more, and I imagine many of you would also like to know a little bit more about how that deal is actually structured, what the implications are. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. The province is also reviewing the Animal Health Protection Act and regulations. Of course, trying to have the highest possible standards for animal welfare. The legislation was enacted back in 2012, reviewed on public consultation 2017, and they're doing it again. It's a virtual opportunity, an online questionnaire. You go to Engage NL. One of the key concerns put forward is that some folks will tell you the current legislation is not up to snuff because of the issues surrounding backyard breeders. Dogs, of course, force have litter after litter. There are some concerns with the safety and the welfare of animals who are backyard bred dogs. And maybe for people who purchase a backyard bred dog, what kind of animal you're actually getting and how healthy is that particular animal. So that's one point of concern for many who are in the animal care world is the concept of the backyard breeder. So if you'd like to engage, and people, it always strikes an emotional chord when we talk about animals, especially pets. So Engage NL is the place for you to turn if you are so inclined. And on that front, you see an unfortunate story coming from Labrador where the Faith Faith Haven Animal Shelter in Labrador City took a real, it's not in Labrador City, it's in Wabush, took a real beating over the winter. There's been some water seeping, damage to the roof. There was issues with heat in the building. They're not saying they're closing the doors, but it's in bad need of some repairs and renovation. If you'd like to chime in from the big land on that particular issue. They also say some of the numbers of animals they've been taking in to shelter are being abandoned by families who can't find a place to live that accepts pets which has been a long-running concern about the ability for a landlord to tell you, no, you cannot have a pet and live in my apartment or my home. So those two things are happening. You want to talk about it? Let's go. Yesterday, the Transportation Safety Board talked about the report into the sinking of the Sarah Ann back in 2020 and the death of all four aboard. And their names, Skipper Eddie Joe Norman, his son Scott Norman, nephew Jody Norman, and Isaac Kettle. They all perished when the Sarah Ann apparently quickly capsized or suddenly capsized. No indication that was struck by a larger commercial vessel. There's also some comment about stability. Now, no real stability test was performed, but it's also a possible factor. So says the representatives representatives of the TSB. And this is not about the Sarah Ann, but stability issues have been long a concern here with the rejigging of what a 65-footer looks like. I mean, I don't have one. I haven't been on one. They look top-heavy to me. And then we have the long-running concern of trying to live up to Transport Canada's rules surrounding the length of the vessel. I have never heard a legitimate argument, my personal opinion, a legitimate argument about why that is happening. Cutting a couple of feet off your boat to meet those length regulations when your quota is your quota, the, the, the size of the hold is the size of the hold. I've just never really understood that. And certainly, when the boats are designed and recognized in the center of gravity, the buoyancy issues, stability issues, it's jeopardized when you chop something off the boat. So that still goes on if you want to talk about it. We can do it. They also talk about how uh, vessels are registered. 
looks like in the offing will be the requirement to register your vessel not only with DFO, but also with Transport Canada. Apparently, there's more than 4,000 fishing vessels in this province registered only with DFO. And I'm sure that would be of interest to many of you who make your life on the water. If you'd like to talk about what you heard in the report or some of those stability-related matters, we're happy to take that call here today. All right, good news for folks who have been waiting to move in to the two new long-term care facilities in Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor. It's going to be open officially on the uh, 25th of this month. So you can contact with Central Health to find out more about the admission process. But this has been a long brewing issue. There was thousands of deficiencies identified, which has meant a variety of things to different people, such as folks who remain in hospital, medically able to be discharged, but nowhere to go, no bed available, because these two facilities, 60 beds per, have not been able to open as they work towards rectifying these deficiencies. Charge $39 a day while they remain in those beds, which is completely and patently unfair, through no fault of their own, but now thankfully they're going to open. Some looming questions would be, who's really responsible for all the deficiencies, whether it be through the role of inspectors or the competency of the company that built the two homes or the province itself, what the additional costs were because of the schedule being completely obliterated yet again, just another project plagued by schedule and budget problems, but those two long-term care facilities scheduled to open officially on the 25th of this month. And again, you know, Susan Walsh, new seniors advocate, it's not just about dealing with systemic issues facing seniors today. It's really important for us all to look down the road as to where we are with the average age of the population and preparing for what's right in front of us today and numbers that will grow in years to come. So it's a big, wide, broad conversation, but we know the numbers. We've seen the, st the statistics and the forecast or the prognostication, so let's tackle it from any angle. And many of you following along with the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership battle, and it is exactly that. It's been interesting to watch. Uh, I think the two frontrunners can be carefully said that are the Pierre Poliev and Jean Charest. So I'm happy to talk about whatever inside that, that, that interests you. But there's a couple of strange things going on too, right? All of a sudden, Ed Fast, Ed Fast isn't conservative enough. Jason Kenney, after a leadership review where he won just a slight majority, 51.4, I think, percent in favor of his, of his leadership, and he steps down. He's resigning as the leader of the UCP. Not sure if he's going to keep his seat, but he's resigning as the leader. And when Jason Kenney is not quite conservative enough, that's sort of odd. Many people think it was because of some of the public health restrictions, whether it be for vaccines or masks, but Kenny says that's not good enough. At one point, he said 50% plus one would be good enough for him to stay on as leader, but it's a pretty slim majority. If over 48% of the respondents, and there's about 36 members, 36,000 members of the UCP in the province of Alberta, and Jason Kenny, out. Interesting. We're on Twitter. We're VOC up online. Follow us there. And it's also... It's a bit weird to follow along the farcical potential for Mr. Musk, Elon Musk, to buy Twitter. Hard to know what's going on there. It seems to me he's looking for ways to backpedal out of that potential deal. But anywho, we're taking your emails. It's openlinefvocm.com. How are we doing on the telephone, David? Standard operations here. Let's check in on tune before we come back and speak with you. Today in 1958, Peggy Lee went into the famous Capitol Tower Studios in Hollywood, California to record Fever. 
When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Harbor Grace. That's Don Coombs. Mayor Coombs, you're on the air. Morning, Petty. How are you? Great, sir. How about you? Absolutely perfect, Petty. Come on. Petty, just wanted to give you a call today to let you know and your listeners that a very important weekend coming up in Harbor Grace. Uh, we are kicking off our Come Home Year celebrations tomorrow, but uh, just as important as that uh, is that we have a reenactment of Amelia Earhart uh, coming to Harbor Grace, and uh, we have some planes flying in uh, probably about 11, 12 o'clock tomorrow. And at 1 o'clock, uh, we're going to have a ceremony and a remembrance at the, the airstrip. Uh, tomorrow is her 90th anniversary anniversary of our flight and we're encouraging people to come out uh, come to the airstrip uh, we're having a little motorcade the 99s which is Amelia's group uh, female pilots are in town we have uh, approximately 50 of them uh, Amelia is going to be leaving at a hotel Harbor Race which is which name is now that was Archibald's hotel back then 90 years ago and she's going to be escorted in in an antique vehicle and with the RCMP followed by the 99s and uh, we're going to have some things planned at the airstrip strip. Uh, Amelia's played by Monette Hoyt, and she's going to address the people. And uh, what we have there, we have the St. Francis School Council Choir going to be uh, uh, singing some songs as a melody. And uh, unfortunately enough, we have uh, Captain Mary Cameron Kelly. She's going to be doing a low-level fly with a Canadian Forces plane over the airstrip. And uh, so it's going to be an exciting day and a chance to meet people, to meet and greet. And another special person there, this Patty, is Dr. Wyatt. Dr. Wyatt was at the airstrip 90 years ago as a young boy, and he's going to be joining us at the airstrip for the celebrations. And the flights from uh, that took off from the airstrip in Harbour Grace, we have um, a sign put up where, with the mileage to the different sites, and we're going to be unveiling that. But we encourage the people to come in, uh, say hello to the people that are there. Kim Windsor, she is the governor for Canada East with the 99s, are having their first annual general meeting in Harbour Grace in Newfoundland. So a lot of activity in the town weekend, and uh, it's going to be a great chance to uh, to uh, relive a bit of history that we have in our town and our province. Speaking of female pilots, uh, Wanda Clark at Provincial Airlines. It's her birthday today. Uh, happy birthday to Wanda. The province has an extraordinarily rich aviation history that I don't think we've latched onto enough. Uh, good on you and the town for doing what you're doing to commemorate the 19th anniversary. But like it was a couple of years ago, the uh, 100th year anniversary of Alcock and Brown, there's aviation buffs around the world who would crawl all over this place if we did some real big glossy glamorous uh, celebrations of some of our avia, aviation history so good on the town of harbor grace you know i unfortunately hear a lot of negative stuff about come home here and i know there's big price issues and pressures and stuff but bookings seem to be up way up on marine atlantic looks like airline traffic is way up as well so i'm cautiously optimistic about it how about you i'm, I'm very optimistic uh, and patty just to go back to the aviation history you know when we spoke about it on your yeah, on VOCM the other day, and they did a story. We had uh, Ireland ambassador to Canada come here. Yeah. The reason he came here to Harbour Grace, uh, because of Amelia, the aviation history. And, uh, you know, the thing is, we have 75 people coming. I said about 50 from the 99s. They 
have their their guests, some of their guests coming with them. They're they're, sta- they're not just flying in to St. John's and, and leaving. They're going to make a tour of it. So a lot of them are spending a week or two. So that's the positives of come home here. But we're exposing our pro- our province to to new people coming in. And you know, you want to go to the Bonavista, you want to go across the province. We we've got we've got uh, you know in every community in our town, we got something to showcase, and, and we're very lucky. And uh, also on Saturday, Patty, Derry, Ireland is where she landed. Yep. We're going to be hooking up a phone call with the like, the mayor's busy with their own celebrations because they celebrate this in a big way that we should be looking at, as you said. And we're going to be doing a phone conversation for everybody to hear. So, you know, we, we've got a great history in our province and great people. And, you know, we got to showcase ourselves sometimes. I, I tell the kids, and you, you're a coach and everything, listen, be confident, you know, in, in what you do. And don't be afraid to tell people that what you do. And sometimes we, we lose that and we lose opportunities. I, I think so. Uh, I agree with that in full. You know, some of these things where if you look at what best practices are and how successful, whether it be on the Irish side and Kerry and what they've done to celebrate things like Amelia Earhart and Alcock and Brown and up and down the line, if we could latch on to even a half of that horsepower and the numbers of people that flock to these towns for these types of celebrations, we would be way ahead. And the key always on that stuff is not only are your guests coming and doing a little tour, they might come back again. <laughs> you know? This is what I said to council, and when this came up, thanks to Kim Windsor, you know, yes, we're going to be a part of this. We have our museum, the Conception May Museum. That's a volunteer organization on Water Street. You've probably been around it. They're opening, opening up an aviation room, and the public can get in to see that. You know, this is part of our history. But I'm sure, I'm very confident in saying that these people are going to come back when they see what our province has to offer. And... Uh, you know, it's it's just great to see, and I'm looking forward to it. I encourage the people, don't have to be from Harbour Grace, anywhere in the region, to get out, come up to the airstrip, say hello, meet the th- uh, things. And uh, Stephanie Oliver at the school has done a great job with her choir. We're getting the old Canada saying they have no, another number of events. But get out and meet these ladies. They're all female pilots. They're part of the 99s, and good on them to come to our province and our town. Great stuff. I wish you nothing but the best of it with this particular celebration and throughout Come Home Year, Don. Take care, Patty. Look forward to chatting soon, buddy. You too, Mayor Coombs. Take care. All right, bye. It's Don Coombs. He's the mayor of the town of Harbour Grace. Let's go to line number one. Michael, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Uh, um, like I say, you know, it's time for the people in the House of Commons to grow up. I mean, every time they turn around, they have a, a meeting where and somebody gets up and asks a question. And somebody tried to answer it, then it gives their clap and a cheer, and I mean, what, what kind of people are they? I mean, like our problems are it's in bad shape now. Like people are hungry, gas is going up, and no, like nobody don't care. I think people care. Uh, so you're talking about the House of Assembly here in the province? Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, watching question period or any of the proceedings in the House is disappointing more, more often than not. And I think it got demonstrably worse when the TV cameras were there because now it's got a bit of theater associated with just do, uh, attending to the people's business. So, yeah. And some of the things that get laughs and the desks being banged down are really not desk banging worthy, in my opinion. But, yeah, it's a bit frustrating. Yeah, well, you know, it's just sit around and hold the comments and say, look, this is the problem we have. People are hungry, gas has gone up, everything's gone up, and they, like, they, don't, they, don't, like, they don't care. You know? And I think do you, do you seriously think they don't care? What? Do you really think they just literally don't care? Yes, I think they don't care. Because, I mean, if they care hard, you know, they care, they would try to help people out. I mean, our taxes are high and everything like that. I mean, I'm not against immigrants, but to bring all immigrants in here 
and the feed and clothe them and, and everything else. The people on your on your phones on uh, on your phone on your talk show looking for help for some reason. You don't get no help. Nothing like that. I mean, it's not right. Well, there's not much in the way of provincial help going towards the the Ukrainian refugees. There was a big change in the way the federal government approached Ukrainian refugees and immigrants. So their financial support's coming from individuals and organizations. They don't get income support like other immigrants would have had in the past from the province. Uh, like Greg Roberts at Mary Brown's, he stepped up with huge financial support for the, I think it was 167 came on that one chartered flight. So, yeah, I mean, everyone needs to be given a leg up when required. And I feel the pressures that everyone else is feeling. And I hear a lot of really difficult stories from whether it be on the line here or on my email box. There's a lot of it. But from where I sit, we can help our own and welcome immigrants as well, because I think we've got there's a real social and economic argument to be made uh, for the benefits of immigration. But no one's denying the fact, Michael, that many people out there are struggling mightily and do need some help. Yeah, you know, people going back and forth to work and all that, I mean... I mean, most of their checks are going in gas, so we got ridiculous. That should never be, you know? And, and the gas and oil, that should never go up to high. I don't know why they're doing that, but I mean, it's ridiculous what they're doing. I mean, they're saying it's the weather or the war or something we got, but they're not going to do with all that. I think you should let the gas and oil go back like it used to be and, and, and let people go on with their lives. It's ridiculous, you know? It's difficult. I'll certainly uh, give you that one, Michael, no question about it. Would you like to say anything else, sir, while we have you this morning? Yeah, like you said, it's time for them to start doing something. It's really, really ridiculous, you know. I mean, you can't, you can't survive. I mean, and what are people going to do this winter, you know, for heat and all that? But you don't, like you said, you don't, you don't even care. Like, you know, you freeze that's your problem, not ours. And, you know, I heard a lot of people, you know, chatting about, you know, the hard distance and stuff like that. I mean, and I think they're going to, what's going to happen. They're going to put taxi business out of business because people are not going to be able to, you know, drive and keep on. And I think the big problem is, is that people make a mistake because every time gas goes up, everybody runs to the pumps. So if save it, save it, and the police will save gas for dollar fifty today, and they put up dollar sixty, somebody runs to the pump. Then they say, oh well, you know, we they put the higher to try higher, so then they put up a little higher. People run to the pump. If you keep running to the pump, it's not going to solve the problem. You got to stop waiting and stay away from the pump, and not buy it. Well, some people don't, simply don't have a choice. Like, I have to get to work, so I have to drive. Uh, uh, if it was convenient and I could get public transportation, this would be something I absolutely would consider. You know, I have a big rig. I'm actually driving my wife's more efficient, smaller car just to try to save a few bucks on gas. But, Michael, I appreciate your time. I hope you're doing okay, you and the dog. <laughs> yeah, one more question, though. I, I think myself they should stay away from the bike. I mean, stay home. Everybody's not, not moving, not doing anything. One day, I mean, Lord Jesus, getting, you know, I think everybody should bar off the pumps. I know everybody got to go to work, and I know people got to eat, something like that. Uh-huh. I think you should buy, buy it for a day or so, and they might, they might change it. But as long as they keep putting up the gas, and people run through the pumps. Well, I mean, I don't go to the pumps. I don't care if I go $20 tomorrow, I won't run through the pumps. Okay. But if everyone keeps run through the pumps, they're going to keep putting them up, and they're not going to know about it. Yeah, well, I don't think that hurts the oil and gas companies at all, because eventually people are going to have to go back to the pumps. So a one-day symbolic 
boycott has long been things people talk about. But realistically, if I don't go today, I'm just going to go tomorrow if I need the fuel. I appreciate the time, Michael. Take good care of yourself. Yeah, you do. Thank you, bye. Right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president of the FFAW. That's Keith Sullivan. Good, oops, wrong. Morning, Keith. You're on the air. Oh, yes. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yep. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm really calling today, and uh, many people, particularly if you're in rural Newfoundland uh, these days, you would know that there is really a crisis where harvesters can't get to fish. So I'm calling to talk about and voice our displeasure with the inaction of Minister Bragg and our government in dealing with that crisis. And it's been getting worse every year. We've highlighted this. So right now, fish harvesters in the province do not have an option to sell valuable premium seafood to anybody else except their buyer. So it's kind of gone back to the merchant era where they're told when to fish, how much to catch. Competition has been eliminated. So we've elevated this issue with successive fisheries ministers, had hundreds of harvesters on the steps of uh, of the House of Assembly to put out their concerns, their frustrations prior to the start of the seasons. We've met with the Premier before and since. We know that the people who have really been leaned on disadvantaged the most are inshore harvesters, uh, smaller vessels put on costly trip limits. Some have been tied up for weeks, and it's happening everywhere. And the other thing, if you're somebody not involved in the fishery, you don't got directly the, the skin in the game, you should care about this as well, because harvesters are not able to fish other species who are losing out on value work for those in the processing sector, and really it's value to our economy at a time when we need it, so valuable taxes and everything else. So there's a domino effect here that has been ignored, and clearly what Minister Bragg is doing is propping up and supporting four or five CEOs and really uh, hurting thousands of harvesters and people in our rural communities in the province so and it's not acceptable and something's got to change i would imagine that this sentiment grows when you see the price adjustment the, the uh, price setting panel took the association of seafood producers recommended price so it went from 760 down to 615 i think you guys were somewhere in the 655 neighborhood if i remember correctly so whatever you felt like a week ago, you feel worse now, especially when you've got the boat tied up and you have the quota to catch and you can't get out and get it. And what was 760 pounds now, 615. And the number of t- trips you're going to have to take to get your quota and the costs associated with that, it's a perfect storm. That's exactly right. I mean, you can imagine where people clearly, clearly demonstrate where they've lost out on opportunities. And that is incredibly frustrating. And even if our, our position, which obviously we, we believe should have been selected, uh, it still was it was a big loss to people. And like everybody else uh, in the economy and trying to get by today, the price of fuel is really crippling, particularly something in the fishery and more bait. And like I said, they're missing out on additional opportunities to fish other species as well because you're hung up on this. So, I mean, it has that domino effect. And, uh, you know, I think before, I, I assume uh, people would, would bring it up uh, around, you know, some of the, the solutions around this uh, and what the impact on plant workers would be. 
Well, and let's talk about that a little bit more impact on plant workers because uh, I think you've heard me say this many times. I've always been surprised and shocked by just how little the harvesters get for the raw material. It's much like uh, much different than every every other industry in the world. So. But plant workers, let's just say you were pull up to the wharf and you offload and the product gets graded and you take bids from representatives from different provinces, different countries. What happens to the processing sector of some of those workers that you represent? So if much of the product possibly goes elsewhere, then that would also have the said domino effect, would it not, Keith? Yeah, well, well, let's let's talk about that and really put the facts sure. on the table here, because a lot of this that that has been kind of fear mongering from the the processing sector who are really protecting us uh, like like a monopoly there. So, uh, you know, obviously, and I'll just say that you know, plant workers in this province now have been working extremely hard and making sure that we're maintaining top quality product this year. They're really working. Uh, run off after feet at this time of the year. Uh, but one thing uh, that's fortunate, we have nearly double the amount of crab, for example, we did a couple of years ago, 50 million uh, more pounds than we did just uh, two, three, three, two or three years ago. And, you know, the minister kind of talks about, you know, uh, you know, looking at the, the plant worker piece in this. And, you know, I think normally that would be a fitter point. But at the same time, he's rubber stamping sending out of tens of millions of pounds of fish coming from the offshore companies. So the same companies who are protecting here, they're allowing to ship out, like Ocean Choice, for example, and other offshore companies, you know, got uh, tens of millions of pounds of yellowtail, American place, and redfish, and the offshore shrimp. All of that goes out to various countries in the world, and not just uh, low-cost labor countries, like shrimp is going to Iceland and Norway. So that amount of stuff that's shipped out just to support those offshore companies, that could be as much work as what the entire crab industry is here. So to say that, uh, you know, we can't find a balance and do something for uh, a plant, for example, like St. Mary's, uh, which lost their license, there is when there was seven plants in that bay, now there is none, an opportunity for some economic development there and people to get jobs back who lost them. You know, I think there's a balance, and obviously, uh, you know, the security of plant workers is first and foremost a concern for us, but there has to be a balance. For someone to be tied up, losing their season, economically disadvantaged, dealing with the stress of that, been tied up for weeks when they cannot sell to anybody else, is not acceptable, and so this government really got to make a move on that, not sit back and let people suffer continually. It's uh, it's just such a strange industry sometimes. Uh, for as long as I've been in the media, and sp- specifically sitting in this chair, it seems to me it's the same old song and dance every single year. Very little changes. The last big adjustment that's been made was doing away with last in, first out. And other than that, the same issues plague the industry all the time, whether it be inshore versus offshore, offshore draggers, the toothless uh, appearance of NAFO, body up, bycatch, you name it, it's the same thing every year. Well, I wouldn't say. I know there's definitely, you know, we, we hear the challenges. And a part of that is, you know, real volatile 
industry. It's tough at the best of times. You're, you wait and get the latest science, and you know your the, the quotas could be up or down. Volatility there, then based on the market, like what we saw in crab, for example, in different species. It's certainly the expectation that crab would perform better. It's a tough business and going to be stressful. But what has been constant in the last number of years, and what I'm mostly uh, speaking to today, is that lack of competition. So if somebody cannot sell to anybody else, even though they have a very valuable product. And that is a desperate situation and a call for harvesters to say, uh, you know, we should be able to sell outside. And I know the people I'm talking to, they have no desire. They want the, this, the, the, the product to stay in their communities and not go outside. But when you have no other options, I mean, it's not fair or reasonable. And so people are going to call for that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate when it comes to that point of view that we have the, this government that have continually supported just the processing sector and are just leaving the harvesting sector to uh, to really lose out on opportunities. And it's definitely not fair. So this minister waiting and continuing to drag the heels on doing something to address the problem, that is something that is not acceptable to, to our membership. And uh, I, I expect uh, all of his colleagues who are MHAs know this very well, and I got calls on it too. So we hope that they've moved this up the, the priority chain and do something about it. Uh, last one before I let you go. You know, based on the Transport uh, Transport Canada's review or the Transportation Safety Board review of the sinking of the Sarah Ann in 2020 and the four lives lost, you know, in regardless of stability issues, those types of things, but the issues surrounding how many fishing vessels here are only registered with DFO and not Transport Canada. What's the concern there and what changes if you're b- registered with both entities? Well, you know, you know, first of all, I'd, you know, still thinking of the families uh, been brought up uh, today. So the Norman Kettle family. So we're, we're we're thinking with thinking of those those people when when kind of this stuff is rehashed. Uh, so firstly, just to address a, a couple of things uh, quickly, and you know, we're working with a, a safety association to try and you know promote safety in every aspect, whether it's everybody wearing PFDs and awareness campaigns. Right now we have a program that where uh, harvesters and enterprises can get discount uh, personal locator beacons. So there are still options available. Right now we have budgeted for one per enterprise for up to uh, uh, 2,500 enterprises. So that basically that's a personal EPIRB. We're looking to expand that to uh, an actual EPIRB. And it's unfortunate we couldn't get government uh, monetary support or funding to do that, but the FFAW and organizations like the FRC and and Har- uh, Safety Association has done that. So I think it's important that we, we point that out. And the other issue on the, uh, you know, the last couple of years, uh, the the uh, they have been talking about the the, the dual registration with the uh, Transport Canada. You know, our first discussion was okay. We have uh, harvesters have every vessel. Sometimes they might have let's say a couple of vessels registered with a government entity, a unique identifier. And now government are saying that you know no, we got to 
duplicate that process and register and another unique number to make it more confusing. Really, the most logical solution here was that the federal government work together and share their information to do it. It seems redundant and costly and doesn't really make sense. So I think that should be made a priority uh, because that's a confusing part. But in the meantime, uh, we'll certainly work with the, the regulators to make sure whatever system is, I mean, that people are, are registered with Transport Canada as well for now, if that's going to you know possibly save lives. But it still doesn't make any sense to have the duplication and additional stuff that's, you know, essentially doing the same thing. So, um, you know, we'll uh, certainly do what we can to make sure that people are uh, more safe when they go fishing and what's a tough business. And we'll be looking at following up on that report in a little more more detail as well. Yeah, I didn't understand the the implication of being registered with both entities, so I'm glad I asked. I appreciate your time, Keith. All right. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Keith Sullivan, president at the FFAW. Let's go ahead and take a break. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's do it. Line number six. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning, sir. I was out planting uh, a few spinach this morning. Uh, in fact, they're big enough to eat now. They were, they, they were left in the greenhouse since last uh, fall, and uh, they, they, they started again. Anyway, I was watching a couple of starlings uh, b- building a nest, and uh, it was fun watching them back and forth with the grass. But anyway. Lovely. Patty, um, just a quick comment on the fishery, the uh, lobster thing, from a consumer point of view. Uh, a couple of days ago, we, we bought some, uh, I said lobster crab, from the, from the fish plant. And uh, without thinking, uh, my wife asked how much uh, we were going to buy. And I said, oh, 20 pounds. <laughs> 20 pounds worked out to $200. And, and you know how much that was a crab? It was 13 crabs, so it worked out to $15 a crab. <laughs> that's pretty expensive. And that's a lot of crab, period. Yeah, that's a lot of crab, but we, 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 we do it up in small packages just to have for lunches and that. But anyways, uh, one time uh, when, when we were fishing car traps, we used to crush them as they came up. Uh, that was back in the 60s. Uh, crush them underfoot to, to get them out of the twine, you know. <laughs> anyway, things change, right? Mm-hmm. It's a volatile fishery, as, as Buddy said. It's, uh, it's a built-in conflict. You're not going to have any solutions. There are no final solutions. When you're, when you're negotiating for prices every year, this is what you get, and you can expect more of it every year, you know. Patty, I'd like to speak quickly about uh, uh, um, the the uh, U.S. congressional hearings on UFOs. <laughs> I'll admit, I, I've watched a little bit of it, and this is a bit of Nightline content, but yeah, let's do it. It's, it's, it's the first uh, time they've met on this in 50 years. Yeah. And the reason that's coming up is... Uh, there are so many sightings, and especially uh, the really uh, uh, good ones are by pilots that are, as one lady said who was a reporter on this, she said they're very, very highly trained people. They they know what they're seeing is, is, is not normal, it's not man-made, and they're very concerned about it. And right now there, there seems to be a climate where people are willing to talk openly uh, in Congress about this. I don't think they'll have any answers, but uh, uh, she said, I wish we could uh, find out what's going on in the classified hearings that are not public. Uh, but what's coming out of the public hearings is, is, is pretty good, too. Yeah, not bad. The, the military, just the military alone, are reporting, I think it was 11 near misses, they're calling it. And it's uh, the UFOs and some unexplained aerial phenomena is what they're calling it, I believe. Is that the, yeah, yes. the, the UAPs? Yeah, there's one that many people have probably seen the video. It was 2004, 2005. It was an aircraft carrier operating in the Pacific, and the 
the visuals are really quite clear. The pilot and everyone who's looked at that video has seen something. The military has no explanation for what we've seen on the camera. So even if we're not being, you know, loons chasing around the mercurial uh, UFO, there are things that can't be explained. And the military has the oomph and the might and the horsepower to really dig into these issues. They have at least 11 that they're willing to talk about that they have no explanation. I don't think they're going to come up with it because people will say, oh, there's life out there, all these planets and galaxies and so on. What what most people don't seem to make the leap to is these civilizations uh, could be millions of years ahead of us. And just as we are probing the, uh, the solar system and that with our little efforts, uh, they've probably been probing for, for, for millions of years. And the fact that saying they can't reach us because of the uh, limitations, travel, speed of light and so on, it's just a limitation of the mind. Uh, they're here and uh, hopefully, I'd like in my lifetime that uh, <laughs> something more definitive happens, but we make contact but anyways. But they're, they're really trying their hardest to to separate it from the you know what people might see is a little bit wacky and the concept of ufos and all the rest of it area 51 what have you as far as they're willing to report they've never recovered any extraterrestrial inorganic or organic material they're also going to talking about it as if it's not about finding aliens or alien spacecraft it's the conversation that they're trying to focus it in on national security so they're doing their level best to not be painting themselves as potentially wacky people they're yeah. they're really going all out to make it about national security and, and the like when it's just an interesting conversation i don't know for a long we're probably not but if there's something being seen in the skies and the military themselves with their well-trained pilots and the visual documentation an explanation is all people are looking for it's not saying well that's you know the man from mars flying around in the pacific it's a bit broader than that but it's it's kind of fascinating to follow along well I would dispute two two little things. Sure, you go ahead. Say there, uh, I don't say probable. I have had my own sighting. Uh, it is uh, t- to me, it's 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 a total uh, uh, give there. Uh, it, the, the, something's here, and uh, I would dispute too that they haven't found anything. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research, and uh, I, I I believe they have. But anyway, that's uh, leave that for another time. Well, that's a dispute based on a two. I cast a little bit differ, differing opinions, so I can handle that. There's a, uh, the last Air Force investigation in particular, I'm just trying to draw this all off the top of my head, so I'm not really sure. There was, it was Project Blue Book. Yes. And it revealed a fair bit of stuff, but this is a way more deep, comprehensive examination of what is inexplicable things that they've seen in the sky. So it's all, yes. it's all very fascinating to watch along, follow oh, yeah. along. Fascinating. Anyway, okay. a little bit on a home eating fuels, uh, People think the government and can, can just step in with the gas and so on. A lot of people don't seem to realize we are in total, total financial uh, uh, in the disaster zone. The money's just not there. If people think the governments don't want to move on this and, and gain people's support, they're, 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 they're not thinking. They, uh, they, they just don't have the flexibility anymore uh, with, with, with what we owe. You've said it many times, what we pay in interest uh, on, on, on our debt every year. And, and, and people just don't get that. They think government can step in and everything's going to be okay. That's not going to happen. 
And on the whole meeting fuels, the mini split, a lot of people have these, and I think the people who put them in advise you to have, have them on a certain setting, which is fine, but that's not the best way. The best way to use mini splits, we found, is to use them as an appliance. So when you get up in the morning, you turn them on, and in five minutes it's warmed up, not the same as electric heat. And then after breakfast, you're out in the garden or out walking or, or whatever. You can turn them on lunchtime and you, 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 in, in the evening, of course, as well, when you're watching TV. And if you use them as an appliance and put on a sweater and so on, you can uh, you can cut down your heating bill uh, 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 quite a lot. But anyway, that's just, just, just my suggestion. Yeah. Um, a very quick comment on the government's ability to help. We don't necessarily have a an issue with the lack of cash. We have a distribution problem, I think, is quite clear, provincially and federally. And at some point, when we talk about financial ruin, and the province is in a bad spot, everyone understands that. But the question many people will ask is, is it better for a government to be on the hook for more borrowing or for me to be in financial disaster? So that's the measure that has to be calculated here, because at some point, even folks who are doing okay, two professionals and have net family income, six figures, and able to keep the wolf away from the door, at some point, given the explosion in the cost of living and the inflationary pressures, the question will be, who's better served to take on the additional debt load, the government or me? And that point is coming. That question is being asked, I would imagine, by many, many families here. The implication of servicing our debt is important. We spend more on that than we do on education, or what we have for the last decade. At some point, though, that's going to be less of a worry for individuals because their pocketbook, their bank accounts are shrinking. Everyone talk about their overdraft, what the protections are at the bank. So at some point, the question is, who's better off being in worse financial condition, me or the government? Anyway, I'll, let, I'll leave it at that, Charlie. If we can't meet payroll, which is a, 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 good, a good possibility, if we can't borrow, uh, then you look at what happens to the, to, to, to the individual. So we have to look at both. But, but, but uh, to act as if uh, it's a bottomless pit and we can just keep borrowing is just not, uh, not in the cards. The last thing I want to uh, mention... Very quickly, Charlie. Got to go. Uh, yes, the social media. That guy posted, the Buffalo shooter posted, that uh, he was going to do, uh, do, do such an action. And the fact that these social media uh, uh, outlets can, can have that posted... There's something drastically wrong with uh, our government uh, uh, regulations regarding that industry. But the, anyway. the massacre was live streamed. It's yeah. just unreal. Charlie, I, I have to get off the news, but I appreciate your time. Yes, thank you, sir. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's uh, take a break for the news. When we come back, Alfred's looking for a bit of uh, help from you, and then Merv is in the queue to talk about the TSB report on the sinking of the Sarah Ann. Then we're going to talk public transportation. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four, Alfred, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. I, uh, we're senior citizens. We have... Uh, and the need for two uh, ceilings to be painted, and we'd like to get it from the uh, neighbors in need or the senior resort center, to, if they're involved with them. Uh, they can phone me at seven five three two one eight six. What was it about the seniors resource center? Sorry, Alfred. A, a seniors resource center. Uh, I phoned them. And I'm trying to reach them, but the the line is. Uh, Excuse me, um, uh, tangled up or something. I don't know what's wrong with it. And um, there's another group called uh, Neighbors in Need. Yep. So uh, we're seniors and we can't afford uh, professional painters. You know, someone that can paint and 
uh, party on the side or something, or, or uh, a... Uh, um, so basically you need someone to come in and paint a couple of ceilings. Yeah, right. We had a little leak and the plumbers put a couple of holes in the ceiling, uh, one ceiling anyway, and we have to fix that as well. Okay, so if anyone out there has a hand at painting and would like to help out Alfred and his wife, then it's uh, give them a shout, 753-2186. I would appreciate it, and, uh, and thank you. My pleasure, sir. Good luck. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Line number one. Good morning, Merv. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Teddy. Um, hey, look, I have a quick question for you. Uh, you sure. mentioned this morning that you have uh, resorted to using your wife's econo car, the small car. My question is, how do you influence her to get that car? Because my wife will not let me near her car. It <laughs> may have something to do with the scent off the farm. I don't know. but I Quite like possibly. Well, for me, uh, my wife, we live very close to where she works, so she walks quite often. So the car would just be sitting there anyway. So for us to oh, save a few bucks, and there's a vast difference between the, the gas guzzler that I own that I bought back in 2016, which I'm looking forward to getting rid of, uh, and her small Civic. So that's the basics of it. So she she hasn't begrudged me sitting in her car as of yet. Hmm. Okay, well, that <laughs> makes sense. Um, well, look, uh, you know what I'm calling, of course. Um, you know, the uh, TSB report yesterday of the, the sinking of the Sarah Hand. And, and I want to say, look, I, when, I, when I talk about this, uh, as Keith Sullivan had said this morning, we uh, are sensitive to the family because the family is enduring all the discussion and listening and really having to, you know, drudge through a lot of really, really bad memories. So I, I just want to let them know that they're in my thoughts. Um, I'm not speaking for the family, but I did speak to the family, uh, at least one family member yesterday. And, uh, and of course, I had no authority to speak for them, so I want to be careful there. But I will say that uh, they they are very distraught and not entirely satisfied by a long shot uh, with uh, the findings and with the the course of the investigation. And but again, I'll let them speak to that. Uh, you know, the one recommendation that that was there, I, I found it a little bit odd that there was only one recommendation. But perhaps by de facto, there are other recommendations that's not explicitly spelled out there because there was, of course, the regular discussion around around electronics, the EPIRB, you know, digital selective calling, AIS, all these things, you know, the, the proper securing of, of the life raft with hydrostatic release, all those kinds of things. So it was really wrapped up in that, and, and I think a listen there, uh, you know, for, for anyone who's looking and want to understand and have some awareness of, uh, you know, some of the safety features. But, Teddy, I am really dismayed that uh, they have to focus on this one particular uh, recommendation, and I really believe the depths if you drill down of this recommendation, I think goes beyond the idea that the that DFO and Transport Canada needs to better coordinate registration. Um, I have to tell you, you know, going back to the years that I actually was seconded to work on fishing vessel safety to Ottawa uh, with the, by the chief of, of Transport Canada and the safety uh, side of things. And... Um, at that time, there was this kind of a discussion about uh, what information can we glean or share from uh, DFO, uh, and there was also efforts to to have collaborations and to have discussions, and uh, it, it could never it could never seem seem to happen. Uh, and then uh, I found myself before I returned to Newfoundland back at my search and rescue position. 
uh, as a coordinator, I found that we were getting close to a memorandum of understanding. And in fact, the a memorandum of understanding of sharing ideas uh, on the, the things that came up in this report and many others report was actually formalized. And I'm trying to remember the year, but I believe it was somewhere around uh, 2010, 2011, that there, the formal, uh, and I think it was improved in, in 2017, the formal uh, MOU to share the kind of information that we're talking about was there. So if there's a formal memorandum of understanding between the two, uh, because of jurisdictional issues, they had to have the MOU, what, what has gone wrong since? Um, 4,000 uh, extra vessels in DFO uh, that is not registered with Transport Canada. I mean, the number blows me away. I had no, I had no idea. Um, and, but the other thing, I think, when we start to drill down into the depths of, of you know, why that information is not shared is a lack of, in, of consistency because information that DFO would have um, is not the kind necessarily the kind of information that Transport Canada would want. For example, uh, they can't even agree on how you measure, you know, a vessel. What is the length overall of a vessel? In fact, uh, the, when you look at Transport Canada, just to give you a small illustration here, Transport Canada's measurement length overall, you know, is at the waterline. Uh, DFO is, of course, at the extremities of the vessel. And that by taking that extremity, uh, sometimes is only as much as six or eight inches, uh, they said, no, here's the length overall from the tip of the bow to the stern and so on. That in and of itself has created a huge dynamic with regard to stability. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about chopping the stem off, chopping the stern off, doing all kinds of contortions with the vessel, uh, thereby creating an instable vessel uh, to the point where, as probably as much as 30-40% of the vessels out there are, are stability compromised because of that. And so how is, you know, for the life of me, uh, a responsible agency like Transport Canada supposed to take that kind of information and say, this is, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that we want to, uh, that we want to involve ourselves in. So I, I think there's a lot of that, uh, um, you know, that backdrop there, that's preventing, because there has to be something, because nothing else, this is so simple, nothing makes much more sense than that. I'm trying to understand your initial concern with the way that the report was approached. So, just help me understand, you think that it was unfortunate that they focus in on those couple of areas that you mentioned, or what was the concern? I'm just trying to make no, sure. No, I know. Okay, well, let's be clear. I'm not trying, trying to pick a fight with, with, with the TSB Marine. No, that's the right way to put it. No, I, I, what I'm saying is that, look, what they're saying here is, 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 is correct, but, but they've been saying it for three decades and, we're, and there's no movement. You know, where are we going to get some movement on the issue of safety? You know, the, the, the rate of fatalities is actually increasing. Uh, you know, we would, we would, would have thought uh, with, uh, you know, the advent of, of new technologies and so on, that we've reduced that. But as the registration of vessels is starting to drop and fall, uh, there's not a corresponding drop uh, in the accident fatality. So that's there. So what are we going to do about it? I mean, look, there's there's a lot of uh, factors out there, and you can look at you can look at the regulatory issues. You can look at the awareness issues. Uh, you know, it, to me, uh, it, it seems the prevention side of things really has not 
then properly addressed. And how you do that, I mean, I don't have the perfect solution, but, you know, I got some ideas. But the prevention side of things, I mean, we we'll go back in, I don't want to go back too far because, you know what that means, when people started drumming up, hey, in my day, there was this and that, so on. But, you know, when I first, first started working, with the Canadian Coast Guard, there was a prevention office, well-structured, well-trained people who got out there uh, and engaged uh, and connected the dots between a search and rescue case and what went wrong uh, and the person who was involved or the people that were involved with it. And they they connected these dots and they got out there with awareness and so on and so forth. Then we had things moved on to what we called the Office of the Boating Safety. Again, uh, a contingent of very uh, uh, well-trained, really good experienced people people uh, who actually work this Office of the Boating Safety, connected all the dots, out there with awareness, doing liaisons with, with, and safety uh, with, with groups and so on and so forth. And, and, and as the restructuring started to occur, that's all the... Uh, that's all Transport Canada and Coast Guard separated, by the way, uh, and Coast Guard coming under DFO. Uh, then Office of the Boating Safety fell under DFO. DFO didn't want Office of the Boating Safety for many reasons. I won't get into that discussion. Uh, so then another restructuring around 2005, 2006, eight, nine, uh, all these, uh, as all of that uh, area was shifting and moving, um, Transport, the Office of the Boating Safety came back under Transport Canada again, and they didn't want it, so they did away with it. So there is no opposite of owning safety. So there is nobody now to get out there and and do the kind of awareness that was pointed out here uh, in this report, and that being, of course, the stability issues and so on, because... Um, You know, if you talk to the family, and I will say this much from talking to them, that they had no idea, uh, the family had no idea, including the skipper of the vessel, that uh, this uh, stability uh, shortfall existed. He he, he just simply didn't know, and that there was a requirement, if you will, to to do that. But, you know, the finding from the modeling that they did shows that, you know, this vessel, as was stated by TSB in the briefing to the family, that this vessel could have easily just capsized in the harbor, almost at the dock, if you will. And further to that, uh, the sister ship that's out there, and possibly, as they say, anywhere from... uh, 260 to 270 other similar type vessels are out there with the same uh, stability issues. That's that's now really an accident waiting to happen and no action going to be taken uh, to get out and to change all that, no awareness of all that, no connecting the dots on all that. So we are sitting on a pretty volatile situation just in and off that itself completely unnecessary as well. Uh, Merv, I appreciate the uh, thoughts and the time this morning. Thanks for this. Yeah, okay, very quickly. We will be saying, or when I say we, CNL, of course, has a constituent out there, constituency out there of uh, close to about 3,300 uh, owner-operators and so on. We have a membership out there. We're looking for some action. We will be having a more definitive statement about uh, this uh, report and about the overall situation in the next 24 hours. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, doc. Thank okay, you. Merv. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go, to, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Dr. Dietra Walsh, she's the Director of Advocacy and Communication with M&L, talking some public transportation and wastewater don't go away and welcome back to the show let us go line number two taking one to the director of advocacy and communication with municipalities newfoundland and labrador that's dr Dietra walsh good morning Dietra. you're on the air good morning patty thanks so much for having me on this morning there's so many exciting and great conversations happening there and as always 
Um, I have a few content areas that I, I want to talk about, and you mentioned them before the break. But before I go to speaking about transportation and, and wastewater, I, I want to take an additional moment to express my appreciation for the work and the commitment of councils and municipal staff across this province. Part of my work is, is talking with them regularly, uh, listening to their concerns, and of course, taking that back to the table at MNL um, for some of our advocacy work. And last week was Municipal Awareness Week. Our president, Amy Cody, called in and uh, she spoke about that. And I just think we, we, we need to definitely appreciate their hard work and their sincere commitment uh, to to uh, to their communities for sure, and oftentimes uh, volunteers and can be a really thankless, busy job. So yeah, they do yeoman service for the community, no question. And people will complain about politicians; that's just nature of the beast. But at the municipal level, some of the things that are most tangible, the things that we rely on day in and day out, delivered by the municipality. So fair enough. Absolutely, and I mean that's a very good example. So yesterday, I took a trip. Um, up Conception Bay North and up the Bay de Verde Peninsula, and I, I went through Bay Roberts. I was in Harbor Grace. I was in Spaniard Bay. I was in Carbonier. I went then to Hearts Content uh, to talk with the Mayor's Association of Trinity Bay de Verde, and all of those conversations were about wastewater and compliance uh, under the wastewater systems effluent regulations. And we've been talking about this for quite some time, and certainly since I've been with MNL, this has been a topic of of, of essential importance. And, you know, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at outfalls and, and talking about how to, to resolve some of the, the issues. And really what was clear to me is that, you know, again, councils and staff, they're really, you know, they're faced with sometimes impossible situations, but they're really concerned and they're trying to problem solve. And, and we're working together on that. Um, you know, so that's it's so critical. So critical. Absolutely. Uh, fair enough. The, the wastewater issue is not going away. We are well past the deadline that was established by the federal government to up our standards. If people realize just how many hundreds of millions of dollars we're talking about here, they'd be quite fearful with everything else that's going on in the world. Municipalities that absolutely have zero chance to meet the federal regulations. They simply do not have the money. We're talking blood out of a turnip type stuff. And town managers, I remember a story X number of years ago, where there was legal action threatened against the town manager in Dover. I mean, what's that person supposed to do about it? So this is a big, massive issue, no question. Yeah, and we've been, and again, we've been working on it for quite some time and certainly, you know, working collectively with the Federal Department of Environment and Climate Change. And, you know, I think there are solutions going forward. The, the regulations that have been open for consultation based on a lot of the advocacy that MNL has done and our members have done really to address some of the concerns they have to reach compliance. So I'm confident if we're working together and sort of, you know, all pulling towards the same goal and recognizing that it is complicated, um, that we certainly can get there um, for sure. Okay, let's go with public transportation. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I bring it up and I'm scoffed at, which is a strange thing when we're all concerned with a variety of things, whether it be the price of fuels and some people, their motivation might be climate change or what have you. You know, it's one thing to talk about it in Metro and some of the reviews of Metro buses, you know, uh, more frequent routes and express routes and better shelters and all that type of stuff. But let's talk about it outside the Northeast Avalon. You know, the concept of hub and spoke and the things that we can do to kind of change our tune regarding public transportation. I know you gave a presentation at the symposium, the most recent symposium. Give us some of the highlights how you approach rural public transportation. Absolutely. And you make, you, you make exactly the, the most important point. There's an opportunity here 
to have a different kind of conversation. And, you know, my impetus in, in, in giving that presentation, you know, is twofold. One, you know, it is transportation and having, you know, a space to talk about public transportation is part of the advocacy priorities that we have at MNL and that were approved by our board of directors. Um, but also there's, there's an, there is a need to elevate the conversation beyond just an urban conversation as well. It needs to be province-wide. Um, you know, there have been a lot of really fabulous voices on this um, even before. I know Josh Schmee has written about this, the CEO of Food First, you know, talking about how these systems are fragmented. It's a little bit ad hoc, you know, how these sort of even the wheels and spokes that are out there and we know they are out there um, are not well known. So there's an element of trying to even bring awareness to what is currently on offer and connecting them. And again, Josh has spoken a lot about that. Um, but for us and for me, the session at the symposium was to get that conversational space happening with our members as well, so with councils and staff. And the objective was to bring people into that conversation so they effectively could see themselves as part of that. And, you know, again, mentioning that when we talk about things like public transit or housing, um, at least in this province, uh, we often think about those issues in the context of our, our urban areas, so predominantly Corner Brook and St. John's. But that's not the case at all. I mean, we need to have this conversation wider. We need to get people involved. And, of course, municipalities across the country have vested interest in exploring public transit and how transportation systems are connected, both in terms of, you know, just sort of all the functioning of, of the people in of their services, but also the people in these communities. So, I mean, that's really igniting a conversation and, I suppose, inspiring a different imagination was, was my goal in that session. And we certainly got some really positive feedback. So what does it look like? Because I did see someone react to your tweet saying, have we considered uh, options like BC Transit and the way that that's structured, yeah. which I know you haven't, so we won't go too far down that road. But what yeah. do you say public transportation can look like? Is it as simple as publicly funded or P3 and 15 passenger vans? Or what does it look like if people were just trying to close their eyes and say, okay, this, this is public transportation on the Bureau Peninsula? Right. So I, I think the first step is to say and, and to continue on with this work and say, let's map out what's there and let's, let's understand what we already have. Let's understand the gaps. Let's also understand how people move, right? So, you know, we're talking a lot about, you know, accessing spaces potentially for visitors and tourists, which is also important. But when you look at, for example, the commuting patterns uh, between communities um, and even just the use of hospital services or school commuting patterns, like there's a whole picture here of people who are moving regularly and daily. So we have to look at those and that information is all available. We have maps from, um, from the Department of Finance, the statistics agency to kind of demonstrate what that looks like. And in the fall, we'll have even more updated information because the census uh, data will be released on that. So we do have to do a little bit of legwork and then say, okay, now what's next? Um, and, and, you know, again, you know, some of the advocates out there are talking about, okay, let's make a platform. Um, you know, Josh had noted this, make a platform so that people can access this. Okay, well, maybe that's one piece. But I think also we need to explore for municipalities, is there an opportunity to do some additional investments? How can we augment what's happening here? And what are their roles? And I, and I just want to kind of come back to one final thing as it relates to this. You know, uh, public transportation... We need to be careful that we're not necessarily thinking about this as a money-making endeavor. Um, I think we need to have a different starting point, and that was part of my message at the session with our members. If we start from that kind of 
point of view, I'm not sure we're going to get very far because we don't have the critical mass of people to, you know, make money off of this. And I could certainly go down a road and talk about the end of the railway here. My father worked for uh, Canadian National and then it moved to Terra Transport and got restructured because the operations weren't making money. So we know that that model doesn't work. So what it will look like outside of that, that requires a bit more thinking at all orders of government and with municipalities as part of that conversation. But certainly I think it's important to think about investment first and not only investment in services, but we're talking about investment in people. Always. And that's where the conversation should start. Sometimes that kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. And much, many of the conversations we have is how the investment is made in people. Sometimes government policies seems a bit more about bricks and mortar sometimes. And if we craft a message where the investment is in people and the benefit to your life, just like when you're a salesperson, not that you're trying to be a salesman, is, you know, if I'm buying a car, it's the, it's the features, but what are the benefits of the features? That's about the individual much more than it is about the, the structure of the car, the integrity of the car, and the fuel mileage and what have you. So anyway, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, and again, starting from that point of view and thinking about the people who need this, and there are a lot of people who are working in our communities who are needing to access food. Like, we need to think about them. And, and last week, actually, Mayor Andrews from Happy Valley Goose Bay was on your show. He wasn't talking about transportation, but we he was in the session, and he was talking about the work that they're doing on public transit in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And also, again, for all those reasons, ensuring that people can access medical services, can get to work, can access food. You know, all of these things are so important, and I I think if we put people first, then we can find ways to make it work. And I think everybody's going to win in that situation. Really appreciate your time this morning. You're always welcome on the show, Deitra. It's a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. It's uh, Deitra Walsh. She's the Director of Advocacy and Communication at MNL. Let's take a break. When we come back, we mentioned, you know, some of the complicating factors regarding the Archdiocese selling off his assets. We talked about the schools. We've talked about cemeteries. And this morning we brought up the fact that just for St. Vincent de Paul, they are operating four food banks out of four different churches, two in Mount Pearl and two in St. John's. Sandra Millmore is the president of St. Vincent de Paul Society. She joins us after this. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to uh, Sandra Millmore. She's with the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Patty. Uh, welcome to the you? program. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Oh, not so bad. Thank you. There's been lots of consideration about the implications of selling off the uh, assets of the archdiocese. But one big one, of course, is the fact that you've got four of your food banks located in four different churches. St. Peter's and Mary Queen of the World in Mount Pearl, Corpus Christi and St. Teresa's in St. John's. So give us an understanding about, you know, we won't look down the road quite yet in this conversation about what happens if they're sold. But what's the real implications here today for whether it be, you know, looking for additional space if indeed this gets sold off? Where are we? Okay, right now we're in kind of limbo because we don't really know, uh, you know, how, how it's going to go because, like, do we go looking for a place now or do we try to find suitable in the same area? Because we definitely need to be in the same area. The cost of it to move to another area is, you know, well, that's another story in itself. you got to find a suitable place. But we've been operating out of churches since 1968 at St. Teresa's and are like 25, 30 years in the other churches as well. So, like, do we wait and see where the bids lie? Do, we, do the churches be successful in their bids to save their churches? And if so, we could be able to stay there. But right now we're in limbo because we don't know 
what we're going to do, really. You're a volunteer Roman Catholic organization, so does that mean that you get to operate out of these churches uh, free for rent? Well, we, we make, you know, we pretty much, we just self-sustain, we, we survive on donations. So the parishioners are what help us, you know, keep it going. Our volunteers are parishioners. Our financial support comes from parishioners, the volunteer base. And, and we're a sense of community. Like, we all work together within the church because we're all in the basements of our, our prospective churches. So that's, you know, everybody is like a little family. We all help each other kind of thing, right? So, you know, to move out of those churches, you're looking at you know where do we go what do we get a building how much is it going to cost us to you know secure it rent insurance you know it's uh, we've been pretty comfortable in the churches and we've had a lot of support from our churches and like I said we've been there a long time give us some understanding based on what you know about the four different uh, congregations and their fundraising efforts because you know it's a real shame that the parishioners are going to have to come up with the money possibly to buy the church who knows what kind of individuals yeah. or organizations might be out there with much deeper pockets well give us an understanding how the fundraising amongst the congregation is going well, people are pledging to, you know, help get the 15% of the bid, I got from what I understand. And then they'll make a bid on the church, but there's no guarantee. I mean, like someone may come in with a very much higher bidder, and, and or higher bid, sorry, and we, we wouldn't win the bid. So that leaves the church, you know, whoever gets the highest bid will get the church, right? Yeah. So that's, that's you know, totally out of our control. and. You know, where do we go from here? Like, we're just waiting. We're kind of, like, stagnant because we don't know what's going to happen, and they don't know what's going to happen, so they can't give us any answers because they themselves don't know what's going to happen either. And they're attractive pieces of property, too, so there may indeed be uh, bidders out there. And the reference to 15% is uh, by June the 2nd, the bids have to be in, including 15% of the bid price has to be in hand. Uh, yeah. On top of that, anything else to say about the potential sale before we move on to just how much traffic you're seeing? How much uh, traffic uh, pe- people? Patrons, yeah, uh, people who are relying on your food banks. Oh, my gosh. We serve between our four, uh, five, 550, 600 hampers per month. Now, that's only the number of hampers. Like 100 uh, hampers at St. Peter's for, say, this month would equate to, like, over 250 people. Roughly, because that's like the hampers for a family. So it depends on the size of the family. It'll be a single parent, single dad, large family. You know, we we serve a lot of people. And in perspective for that, Christmas time, uh, between our four churches, there's 1,100 roughly food and hampers go out each Christmas. So, you know, the need is great. It's getting it's getting worse, and with the cost of living is is crazy. And with the pandemic, also, our, you know, our food donations were lower because we couldn't, you know, do a lot of our fundraising because of COVID. So we were having to purchase more stuff, and people were afraid to be out, and, and you know, understandably so. But it's, uh, you know, it's taken a toll, and now this weighing on us is it's heartbreaking because we, we pride ourselves in looking after the families we serve, and we're very passionate about, you know, making sure that we could put food in the bellies of our families. So... It's it's sad. It's it's very sad. Like that we've been there so long, right? Yeah, no question. So, you know, we're all struggling with the price of goods, but we know the food banks have the ability to stretch a dollar a little further than I do with my purchasing power when I go to the grocery store. What's the impact? Are you able to even keep up with the demand? I, I hear from Jody Williams on the Bridge of Hope. They're at complete capacity. They are at complete capacity, yeah. And so, so what about you folks? With the, them, you know? I'm sorry to say that again? 
I said, if we close, that's going to put more strain on the existing ones that are, you know, we're hoping we won't have to close. We're hoping that something will happen. Even if, like, say St. Peter's and Mary Queen, one of them sell and one don't, well, maybe we could combine. Like, we're not sure. Of, we can't make a plan until we know what's going to happen because, it's, you know, it's, it's just in limbo. It's crazy. But it's been weighing on us for a while, and we're just... You know, praying for a, a good outcome, actually. Well, uh, I'm with you. I hope for the same positive yeah. outcome. I appreciate your time this morning, uh, Sandra. Thank you for making yeah. time for the program, and keep up yeah. the good work to you and your fellow volunteers. Well, thank you. We very much appreciate it, and our families are of most importance in our minds right now. Take good care. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Sandra Milmore. She's the president of the St. Vincent de Paul Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's go ahead and take a break. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Natasha, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Hi there. The government of Newfoundland <laughs> should buy that woman or those people a place to work out of, free of charge. As simple as that. I was listening to her speaking there a minute ago and the one before her. I don't know, maybe that other woman that spoke before the other one would like to go up and take the bus. But the whole system is tanking into... I don't know. The economy is sick. It's leprosy. You know what I mean? We're we're on a di- we're on a dive, a spiral downward. That's not. That's the, where's the end? I'm uh, sorry. What was the sick, what was the concern with a couple of callers ago? I mean, public transportation could be a cost savings to individuals. Yeah, but you know, everyone in the government like to take the bus. You know, it, it's so it's an inconvenience. I mean, yes, there is need for tra- public transportation. Uh, they should never remove the train. That, that whoever idea that was to take out the train tracks across Newfoundland, not only is it uh, a big point for tourism and making money, it's a form of transporting goods. It's not all the eggs in one basket. They tore that apart. It's someone somewhere was not thinking, obviously. But anyway. That was a rail gauge issue. Anyway, go ahead. People have to give them the right to independence. It's so important. You know, we we sort of live in Newfoundland. We're not all stuck in one little place. The distances are are huge. Uh, And, you know, people live far apart. People need their transportation. They should. What they should be doing is dropping the price of gasoline. I, you know, I, I've got stuff written on Facebook uh, under the Tashikon Fox about that. I'm starting to wonder if everyone is sort of uh, some computer program uh, raising the prices. Everyone's looking around back and forth going, well, who did that? No one really knows, but no one's not a word about the whole thing so you know we could be simply being uh, it's so big and so complicated uh, that they 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 don't you know they, they we got to know basically what you should find out on real who exactly names uh, addresses of who is in control of raising the prices of gasoline it, it, this is the economy of Newfoundland cannot stand well we know who does it the, the paper mill is going to go out of business there's not going to be an industry here. And then jobs in the checkouts. As I talk about people wanting their independence, they're putting in automated checkouts. So, you know, okay. where does it stop? Where does the, the machine take over the human and everyone gets aboard the bus and goes to the food bank, which they can't even afford. <laughs> they cannot even afford to stay open. So it would be my advice to the Newfoundland government to, to make a place for food banks, not charge them for having to rent out a place and give them the opportunity to serve the community that needs the help. Yeah, I'm a little confused with some of... Okay, anyway, did you want to talk about Crown Lands? Yeah, Crown Lands. I put in an application last year. 
the west coast of Newfoundland is undergoing geologic uh, tectonic activity. A Grand Lake was exploding from uh, Pasadena north to Howley and north of that, and then it went south a week later. The massive explosions underwater. She's deep. She's a mile down. You could hear them out in Pasadena, those explosions. Uh, there's explosions in and around Pasadena and parts of Newfoundland. The ground is obviously moving, and out here on the coast where I was last year, same thing. We're getting up and down movement. Everything is sliding. So it's going to be interesting to watch what happens here. We're, we're, we sort of left the dock and we're sort of going somewhere. But keep an eye on that because it's going to get interesting. But the Crown Lands thing, I was down here for a month. Uh, I put in an application for a firm. Uh, I, they, they needed a map. I sent the map on a government link. He provided all the government links. Every link I clicked on... But I buy it from an employee in the Newfoundland government, Crown Lands Office, sent me the links that connected to the Newfoundland government. Not one of those links worked. They were all 404 errors. Now, so obviously people inside the departments don't want to get involved. So, of course, I'd go off to the government site, find the right access points, get the, the, the Google map and send the map in. So that's what I did, marked out the boundary, sent that in. I had no idea that they never got that information. So I'm down out here for over a month. Uh, they send me correspondence via the mail. I don't get near the mailbox but once a month or every couple of months because I'm in a remote location. There were no phones there last year. I did not get a text message. I did not get an email. I did not get a phone call. I got a piece of paper in, in, in the mail with no notification other than that that there was anything required. And because I couldn't make it back, I was out here testing and watching and the geologic activity and doing what I do. I want to get back up to the mail and finally send the thing in. It was bordering on a 30-day period. Because it went over by a day, they shot the application, which is $180. Now, you know, $180 is not is not easy to get. You know, $10 is not easy to get if you haven't got the $10. You know, everybody's struggling. So now they, they want me to reapply and spend the money again. It's not there, – there are things going on inside the government of Newfoundland's employee systems that are not conducive to allowing people to live as independent. They talk about food and a shortage of food. Uh, what, what does I'm that mean, live as independent? Oh, okay. Right? What does that mean? Anyway, I do have to get to the break here, but what does that mean, uh, living independent? What is, I'm not sure what that means. There's a roof over the head. There's heat because heat is important yeah. in the winter time. It's better than freezing it. There's a way to get to where I have to get to get the amenities, vehicle transportation. But there's a roof over the head. There's food, yeah. and there's warmth. So food, heat. Uh, uh, that's you that's know, that's, everyone, that's delightful. Down in Haiti, right? Something goes wrong. Everyone's all right, Natasha. I deal with emergency situations. I deal with things internationally and international conflicts. I've done that for 20 years. In um, what capacity? Here locally, I, I'm concerned because we're letting some force that should not be drive us all down into dependency and to the point where no one is independent and it's food banks which cannot even survive and everyone get the bus which is required right. you know for some people but but it's not the answer you know and, and if they can't not afford to stay open and i can't afford to get a farm because someone in some government agency 
is too busy trying to avoid other people inside of government jobs because there's a problem somewhere. And everyone's playing, push it to the next person. I didn't hear anyone on the internet call upon the name of Christ. It's all, no, it's that person. No, wipe your ass off and someone else over there. It's a problem. It's definitely a problem. So we really have to get back on our own feet here and protect our own unless they want to like the Northern Europe movement in here because Northern Europeans got an agenda. And then, you know, I mean, they're eyeballing us. They're eyeballing our resources. I don't everybody would like Sweden. I have no idea what we're talking about. I know because I study international events. I know what they're up to. I know what they're doing. Okay. You do not want Northern Europe in here running, you people. Because that, that's, a, that's what it could amount to eventually. If we're down on our laurels and we cannot Natasha. stand on our own feet and the fishery is dead. and in, Okay, and no, we're, the, we're, we're, we're bouncing around so much. I honestly, God, I can't follow uh, exactly what I we're trying to get to. Anyway, Natasha, did you want me to put her on hold, Dave? You want to talk to her about something? Okay, Dave Williams wants me to put you on hold. I think he wants to ask you something. Uh, but I appreciate your time. Take good care of yourself. Good luck with the farm. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to Kevin Guest. He's from uh, he's with Beagle Paws. Good morning, Kevin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm great. So I see your uh, your organization quoted in the news story regarding the province's review of the Animal Health and Protection Act and regulations. You say it's not sufficient. Why not? Sure. Well, I mean, I think first, if we could just take a minute to talk about Beagle Paws for anyone who may not be familiar with the organization. So Beagle Paws is a volunteer not-for-profit organization that rescues and rehomes beagles and educates about the breed. Uh, so we currently have about 80 volunteers and since 2003 uh, have rescued approximately 5,000 beagles. So it's this perspective that uh, we feel provides us with a unique uh, perspective on the Animal Health and Protection Act. Uh, so, you know, largely to your point of why we think it's required is, uh, you know, basically because of what volunteers at Beagle Paws see on a regular basis, and that's uh, abused and neglected dogs. So we feel uh, people need to be held accountable for that. And uh, secondly, just a recent animal cruelty case uh, of an individual who nearly starved to death four beagles, and those pictures have been on social media and in media uh, and are not pleasant. So, you know, that individual still hasn't been held accountable. That's a case that's near and dear to the hearts of the volunteers at Beagle Paws. They presented uh, testimony and evidence in that case. And to date, uh, that individual isn't held accountable. Uh, I understand the Crown is now considering a second appeal. And just that alone, Patty, demonstrates that the uh, current pieces of legislation to protect animals in this province are not sufficient. It doesn't sound like it. Uh, One specific area that you point to is backyard breeders. What's the concern? Right. So essentially with backyard breeders, that's people who are breeding the dogs over and over again and then selling the puppies. So any day of the week, if you go on uh, buy and sell or NL classifieds, you can see the puppies. And, you know, unfortunately, these are often beagles. Uh, So these dogs are largely not in great circumstances. The incentives to make money. And, you know, people got good intentions. They see the cute puppy. They want to buy it. They want to give it a good life. 
but you know it's not healthy for a dog to be bred over and over again so often uh you know the female dog has health issues the puppy has health issues uh, and that causes a whole host of problems so it's not only about animal protection which is the priority here but it's also about consumer protection so you know in some other provincial jurisdictions if you breed an animal you need to have a license uh and then if you sell a puppy there needs to be a health check certificate provided so then that maintains the standard of animal welfare and what about the puppies themselves because i know a dog that is aggressively bred over and over again there's obvious medical concerns there but what about the puppies themselves yeah, so, I mean, often the puppies can have health issues, right? Uh, and, you know, there's various things that, you know, various health concerns that they may have, uh, you know, just from a, from a genes perspective of the dog, and it's not, you know, strong enough and things of that nature. So, you know, oftentimes when you don't realize that when you go and pick up the puppy and, it's you know, it's just a cute puppy, you bring it home, and then you realize that it might not develop properly or you might find out it has an issue. Uh, and then often, you know, with these breeders, there's, there's no recourse because you, you went, you paid money, and then, you know, they're not in the business of, you know, customer service, let's say. Uh, so, you know, then there's a whole host of issues. So it could cost, you know, thousands of dollars in vet care. Or, you know, often sometimes these puppies are surrendered to organizations like Beagle Pug. There's also concern, like in years past, there was the concept of someone being deputized by an animal shelter to, to perform a role like an inspector. Where's, what's the status now of inspectors and what needs to be done there during this review? Sure. Uh, so prior to the current legislation being enacted in 2012, that inspector role, which is basically an individual that can go out and review and investigate uh, animal abuse and neglect cases. So that rests with animal welfare organizations. So under the current legislation, that power now is only given to RNC, RCMP, and municipal and resource enforcement officers. So the, the challenge we're seeing with that is capacity. So, you know, these folks are dealing with, you know, ending from vehicle accidents to domestic disturbances. So in that type of environment, animals, uh, you know, just are not the priority. So we'd like to see that reviewed. And perhaps that could look like dedicated resources or assigned resources to the enforcement legislation. Uh, or it could look like changing the definition of inspectors under the legislation to include select people. Uh, from animal welfare organizations. Would there be a concern, like it's one thing when law enforcement respond and do some of this work, whether it be about tethering or animals left outside in adverse weather conditions, what have you, is there any level of concern about the confrontation that would inevitably take place when someone shows up on your property to deal with whatever the issue is regarding an animal's welfare? Is that really why they lean towards law enforcement with their, with their authority and their training and their backup as opposed to just a lay person, for the lack of a better term, showing up to enforce some of these rules and laws? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's a good point. There are some issues, obviously, with people going on to properties from a, from a safety perspective. Um, but, you know, often the challenge we're seeing is it, it comes back to capacity. So if you, you know, get a call on a vehicle accident, uh, you know, that takes the priority over an animal being neglected. So if you broaden and expand that role to include people uh, at animal welfare organizations, uh, you know, perhaps if there's availability of enforcement officers or law enforcement officers, both can go together or the, you know, folks from the animal welfare organization could do a bit of the prep work to kind of move it along. And again, we're seeing that, you know, the education around this uh, and enforcement of it, you know, it's not good enough just to go out and look at a doghouse and say, oh, yeah, you know, that that looks good. That's fine and walk away. But, 
you know, in the legislation, it has standards around it being insulated, there being a hallway if the dog's, you know, living outside, there being a flap on the door. Uh, so, you know, it takes more than just a glance. And so having education around that, which our folks at Beagle Paws has, uh, would be a value. So, and, you know, again, legislation is only as good as, you know, as the regulations and it, it being enforced. So if it's not enforced, you know, it doesn't matter really what's in the legislation. Absolutely. I appreciate your time this morning on this, Kevin. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, lastly, I'd just like to say that, you know, whenever an animal abuse or neglect case rolls around, we always see, uh, you know, thousands of comments on social media. And unfortunately, uh, you know, that is not going to change animal welfare in this province. It's great to see the advocacy and the engagement uh, for animal rights. But if you really want to have an impact, this consultation is the way to do it. So I'd strongly encourage folks to head on over to Engage in LFCA. And they can fill out the questionnaire uh, or provide a written submission at ahpareview at gov.nl.ca. And the deadline to do that is uh, May 29th. Appreciate this time, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take good care. Bye-bye. It's Kevin Guest with Beagle Paws. Let's go to line number six. Robert, you're on the air. Good morning, baby. How are you? Grand. How about you? Well, I was any better by being in a coma. <laughs> that would be better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, what's on your uh, mind? <laughs> uh, uh, helmets. Uh, do you have to have a helmet uh, 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 for uh, a quad? Yep. you got to have a helmet for a quad, too. You do. Oh, okay. Uh there was another thing there uh, I wanted to mention uh, about the school buses. Okay. I thought, like, when they stopped and uh, dropped their uh, kids off, because I was on picks up my uh, grandkids, uh, from my grandkids' kids, you know, and uh, when they get out at 3 o'clock or whatever. Uh-huh. And there last week, they were now, I thought traffic was supposed to stop on both sides, you know, when the school bus stops. Right? When the bus stops and deploys its stop sign and the lights are flashing, uh, traffic in both directions is supposed to stop. Yes, well, I was on last week, and uh, there was two quads behind the bus. So when he stopped the bus, the two quads turned around and uh, crossed the street and went up the sidewalk and then got ahead of the bus and... Uh, went down up the road. Now, I mean, you know, like when the kids get out of the bus, there's people that uh, kids uh, do cross the other side of the street, you know what I mean? Absolutely. It happens all the time. There's this one lady, and I think she lives in Mount Pearl, uh, sends me videos every now and then from her front window where people just do not stop when the bus stops. It's unreal. Like, where yeah. must you be going in such a hurry that you're willing to potentially knock down a kid? Yeah, yeah. Unreal. That was my complaint anyway, and uh, the wild, so you have a good weekend. Same to you. Appreciate the time. Yeah, okay, sir. Thank you. Take care, Robert. Bye-bye. Yep, the helmet issue, of course, lots of conversation around the helmets yesterday, specifically about wearing them in a side-by-side. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, here comes the 24th of May. We're heading up around the bay. Some safety tips for the long weekend coming up after this. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call, Patty. Okay. Uh, I said it's the uh, May 24th weekend, and uh, on behalf of the Life Saving Society in Flint and Lower Branch, I'd like to uh, wish everybody a safe and uh, successful weekend. Uh, our most important message, of course, with uh, 
with with it all is about your life jacket and the importance of wearing it. So, uh, you know, it's especially important to, if you go boating this uh, weekend, please wear your life jacket. And and because water this time of year is very cold, please dress appropriately too. Uh, you know, we've been doing pretty good, but uh, Newfoundland Labrador still has the highest drowning rate in uh, in Canada. So we're still uh, trying to combat that. And uh, hopefully this weekend will be another safe one. Hope so. You know, there's been lots of uh, discussion, debate, and frustration about some of the new helmet laws and what have you. Uh, for me, a good starting point to any excursion, regardless of where you're going, how you're getting there, is to give safety a consideration before you pack up the vehicle or you take to the take to the trails or what have you. But I guess, unfortunately, that's not uh, a common thread. Yes, uh, you know, you, when, when you're going boating, Patty, you should look at your life jacket as the same as seatbelt in a car. You know, it, it, it's been proven to save lives. And the thing is, you know, when you go, I, I don't I don't think anything's going to happen to me because of it. I, I think that I may not put my life jacket on. I may not, uh, you know, put my seatbelt on. And with the ATVs, Patty, I'll put a different fit on for you. Uh, it's, not, it's not about me. This new law is, is uh, for thousands and thousands of ATV years. So it's not, you know, when people call in and, you know, it, they have right to express their opinion on that, but the big picture is protection that it, this, these new laws will afford thousands and thousands of ATV years, and, and hopefully it's not going to be, I'm, I'm not going to be one of the unfortunate ones. Yeah, and I don't know what it is about the long weekend. Maybe we just give it that little bit of additional focus, given it's the first long weekend of the warming up season. But let's hope that come Tuesday, we don't have to deal with or read any stories or headlines that refer to something that tragically tragically occurred over this particular weekend. So that's always the focus uh, for me anyway, and I guess for you and your group. Absolutely, and you know, and, and another big message too is you know, if you're boating or driving or ATV or whatever, please don't drink and drive. And as well, now this time of year, you know, I said before, Patty, a little while ago, be cognizant when you're driving on the highways for moose on the highways. Yeah, because they are absolutely everywhere. So just consider that it's, there is going to likely be a moose on your travel route, and just you know, conduct yourself accordingly. I suppose. Uh, appreciate the time, Barry. Anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? Yes, Patty, thank you. Uh, talk about the uh, the fishery guardians or the river guardians. Okay. And uh, we're still uh, still so mild about that. I haven't heard anything new. I haven't been contacted. I've been uh, trying to contact Minister Derek Bragg now to see about uh, getting him to write a letter in uh, provincial support to it. Uh, I think Paul White's going to give you a call tomorrow to for, talk about further in the uh, conversation. But, uh, you know, like I said, uh, it, realistically, we don't expect the DFO or CWAS to hire around any more additional people this year. But, we, you know, it is very realistic to have their uh, their employment duration expanded into October this year. Yeah, I mean, there's been a reduction in the number of guardians, and certainly they're not there long enough into the season. Having them there right till October so that any potential poachers can be identified. They have the same authority as uh, other uh, government employees. So let's see what can be done there. It makes all the sense in the world to ensure that river guardians are there where, when we need them, as long as we need them. So, of course, for people who don't know, this is a private contract that's let by the government, and I think the company this time around is called Sea Watch. It's a value of about $5 million. So there's always going to be a price tag associated with, but the upside for conservation is quite obvious. 
Absolutely, Patty, and that's the most important thing, you know, future future generations of the fish stuff and, you know, for the future generations of us, our grandkids, and theirs to, to enjoy. Absolutely. Good to have you on, Barry. Have a nice weekend. Patty, thank you very much, and have a safe uh, May 24th weekend, and always it's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Barry. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Let's go line number three. Say good morning to Debbie Ryan from the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Good morning, Debbie. You're on the air. Hi there, Patty. Thank you so much for taking my call this morning. Um, Actually, I'm working with the uh, coalition on a project. Uh, I think that is going to help uh, bring some understanding uh, about uh, persons with disabilities in the way of understanding relationship between uh, the way people function and how they participate in in society. And of course, making sure everybody has the opportunities to uh, participate in every aspect of life. And we know, unless you're impacted by a disability, sometimes it's uh, a little difficult to, uh, to understand the challenges and more importantly to understand how to manage that relationship. So um, the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities in the province is right now in the planning stages for a multimedia campaign, which is, which, as I said, designed to increase awareness and sort of raise the positive profile of persons with disabilities in the province. Um, the campaign, as I said, will present and hopefully promote the reality the capacities and the abilities to a range of audiences with, a, well, of course, a specific, a specific focus um, on, uh, on employers. Um, and we know there's been all kinds of conversations around uh, the whole uh, um, concept of inclusion. And we know as society's focus on inclusion deepens, we, it is very critical that the realities of persons with disabilities are truly understood and uh, considered in every aspect of what we do on a day-to-day basis. So, having said all that, uh, the coalition is seeking feedback from the public uh, to to inform this multimedia campaign, which is uh, respectful, empowering, and authentic. And we feel the initiative could have really far-reaching positive impacts on the lives of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are living with uh, disabilities. And so what's the approach this project is taking? What exactly are we doing? We're actually going out to the public. We're using SurveyMonkey, and I also have a phone number. Um, people can call if they want to uh, get involved. We're actually going out to the, to all levels of the public and asking them to complete an online survey, uh, which will inform them on, you know, what is the general public's knowledge around uh, what it is to live with a disability, and more importantly, how can uh, the general public, um, you know, uh, help um, or support, uh, you know, other people in our community, including people with disabilities. Um, so we're asking people to go to SurveyMonkey. So that's SurveyMonkey.com uh, forward slash R forward slash six Q Z seven seven six five or a simpler way to do it would be to reach out to Jonathan at seven five four two zero six five extension and we'd really love for the general public to get involved. Uh, we know there's, the, as I said earlier, you know, if you've not lived with a disability, Patty, it, sometimes it can be challenging to understand, um, you know, what those uh, challenges are and how you can support the removal of barriers. Um, so this survey hopefully will give us the kind of information that we can uh, 
incorporate into a multimedia campaign, which will go out to the public uh, and inform them on on what they can do to support, um, you know, persons with disabilities. That's where I was going to go because for people in, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, in the disability community who understand the issues because they face the issues on an individual day-to-day basis, it would be really curious to hear from folks who do not have any type of disability for what they understand and what they might be what they should consider when they see what goes on in the world and access points and you know sometimes when we talk about disabilities people focus in on mobility well that's just one so there's that's so right. many different arenas where we should have a better understanding of what people with a disability face day in and day out give us a couple that you think get overlooked because mobility is an well, easy one I right mean, you know it, from my three decades of, of being involved in the world of people with vision loss or a combination of vision and hearing loss, um, you know, that particular group has been, you know, severely mar- marginalized because, you know, we consider it to be an invisible disability. So, you know, it's it kind of like what people don't know what to do with that. You know, you, 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 you're not, some people, um, you know, are not totally blind. They actually sit on a visual spectrum that goes from full sight to no site and and the majority sit in the middle of that spectrum so you know so you you're talking to somebody as a an employer or as even as somebody selling a product to a person uh and you you ask them to do something and then they say well i can't because i can't read that and and the and the conversation becomes very uncomfortable well it doesn't have to be uncomfortable um you know another group patty because i don't want to focus just in on on vision loss people who are autistic and i Again, autism is is on a, a spectrum, um, you know. So it, it's 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 very complicated as to um, you know what autism is and how it, the various um, levels of autism can impact the person who has it. And then there are people with cognitive disabilities. There are people with mental health uh, challenges. All of these groups have been understated, I think, in terms of uh, being recognized in the community um, from you know and, and that you know is what creates um, I guess marginalization when I when I say people who these particular groups of people have been marginalized because they are invisible uh, they don't exist and when they do it, oftentimes the conversation is a very uncomfortable conversation so so we really the coalition of persons with disabilities wants to talk to the average person you know in the province and this by the way is open uh, right across Newfoundland and Labrador, and we want to hear the general public's perspective on what they do understand, and more importantly, what they don't understand about uh, about what life is when you live uh, with a disability. Absolutely. So, one more time, I think I jotted down the number correctly. It was at seven six four two zero six five extension two twenty seven. 754. 754, okay. I was the yep. That's okay. That's okay. Patty, thank you so very much for taking my call. And I really would encourage uh, the general public to get involved in this survey because whatever information you share with us uh, will help us develop or help the coalition, I should say, develop a, a campaign to help create awareness. Uh, and, you know, some people will be surprised about the, uh, about the capabilities uh, of, of people in our community who actually live with a disability. Absolutely. Appreciate the time this morning, Debbie. Keep us in the loop. 
have a safe and enjoyable weekend. I want to wish all your, uh, I hope all of your listeners this weekend, as was said to the, by the prior uh, caller, please uh, take your time this weekend. Make it a fun, family-oriented event, and, and, and let's stay safe. Absolutely. Thank you, Debbie. Okay. Take good care. Bye-bye. It's Debbie Ryan doing some work with the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time left to speak with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Kelly Papert from the Faith's Haven Animal Shelter in Wabush. Good morning, Kelly. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing wonderful, thank you. Okay, so we actually spoke about your shelter off the top of the program today, recognizing the fact that you had a tough winter, a harsh winter has led to some damage of the shelter itself. What happened? Uh, well, um, actually, we noticed that, uh, as, as many know, especially people that live here in, in Labrador West, our January and February months uh, can get quite chilly. And um, our shelter uh, was in much disrepa- disrepair for, uh, you know, for the last number of years. Um, money was never ever there you know we'd always fundraise to do something but it always seemed to go to the to the health of the animal whether it's a vet visit or rehabilitation those types of things so you know we've never had the money to really do any anything structural to the building Uh, this past winter we noticed that uh, we were had a lot of trouble with our electrical and uh, uh, twice we uh, we came to the building and uh, the breakers had tripped Uh, you could literally see the breath uh, from your mouth Uh, we had um, we, we then had to move some animals out. We've been just kind of um, uh, not even having animals in our shelter. We've just been trying to find foster homes for many of them uh, at times. Um, at that time, we had uh, two bunnies that were there. Um, we almost lost them. We had to offer critical care because you know, they were down on the floor. So, of course, uh, they had gotten really, really sick because of it. Um, many leaks in the building. Uh, our... Um, our roof caved in to, uh, to our uh, catio, and that came in through, through one of the windows. Uh, lots of ice going down the walls at times and, and those types of things. So you've also made reference, or I saw a reference in the news story, about the fact that the number of animals coming in the door has shot up, and you're relating back to the housing shortage. Yes, that's right. Um, we noticed back when, uh, when COVID first uh, came to our community uh, that particular summer we had a lot of uh, uh, an extremely high amount of, of cats that were uh, surrendered to the shelter not sure why it could have just been one of those things you know uh, just at that time last year we noticed that um, many many dogs were surrendered and uh, I'd say that about 80% of those <clears throat> excuse me were um, due to the housing shortage um, many people were couch surfing they were struggling to find a place themselves and um, unfortunately they had to make the tough decision to either put a roof over their own head uh, it was hard enough like I said to find a home just for themselves uh, let alone finding a place that uh, allowed pets and uh, sadly many were surrendered to us because of that so are you able at this moment just for clarification are you able to house animals in the shelter right now with the state of disrepair uh, we are able to house, uh, because now the weather, of course, is getting warmer, we're, we are able to house a few uh, cats and, um, and, and rabbits. Uh, we were never able to house dogs. We don't have the facility for that. So, unfortunately, when we get a call 
uh, at 12 o'clock at night if we have to go pick up a dog. And then um, there's a, a number of times that I've sat in a parking lot with a dog sitting in the back of my truck trying to figure out what to do with them. Boy, oh boy. Um, just because you're in the area and I'm not, there's long been stories about the number of dogs that are just roaming the streets in some of the communities in Labrador. Give us an understanding of exactly what you see. Uh, here in uh, in Labrador West, I find that, um, you know, you see them roaming, but for the most part, it's just dogs who are a little bit uh, smarter and able to, you know, they're great escape artists. And uh, many times the owners are uh, are absolutely wonderful and they're, you know, they're usually on a, on a Facebook group uh, looking for the pets, you know, and making it aware. And, and usually the community comes together to uh, to get the, the pet back home. I notice that more with dogs than cats, unfortunately. Sometimes people are still, um, you know, with, with the idea that it's okay for cats to roam. Sadly, you know, there's cats are just as uh, vulnerable to the weather, uh, traffic, uh, wild animals. And, uh, you know, so we see some sad cases there. Um, then we have other ones that are, unfortunately repeat offenders and uh and then uh, you know then we wonder if there's neglect uh coming into play at times you know unfortunately we see that as well and uh way too many times uh for us uh many times we can't uh, really discuss it on our on our page because uh you know you i tell people that when they suspect the neglect or abuse like you need to document it videos and pictures and 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 you know writings and and, and everything you know just text it and and unfortunately, you know, the laws are so lax in our province, in many provinces with animal welfare that, uh, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can't just go to somebody, to an official and say, this is happening, you need the proof. And, and that's where we're always, uh, that's where we're always stuck, unfortunately. We just spoke with Kevin Guest from Beagle Paws, talking about the province review and the Animal Health and Protection Act and regulations. You say it's lax. Where are the gaps, in your opinion? Well, I find that, um, you know, uh, well, we, for us personally as a shelter, what we've noticed is that um, an animal can be tied on it outside of the house. Uh, here in Labrador, actually, it's not against the law, to, if it's a husky, to have an animal tied outside of the house 24 hours a day, you know, and because huskies can bear that weather. But in my mind and in our shelter's mind, we look at it a different way. We look at, okay, maybe physically they can stay, but what about mentally? What about an animal just tied on outside of the house all day, every day? Like, how, how does that play with their with their mental well-being? You know, they're living, breathing things. They have feelings. They, you know, they feel fear. They feel, you know, sadness and, and those types of things. So that's where we come into play. Uh, you know, that's not acceptable uh, as far as I'm concerned. And um, so we have to prove, and and it it's, it's more than one picture, more than one video that we have to prove that, you know, there's no shelter, there's no food, there's no water provided. We, we don't, we can't just go at once and say it, you know, then they will get a fine, and then we have to wait for the second time, then there's another fine. You know, we wish that there were things in place so that the fine is stiff, and the fine is mandated, and the fine is, uh, you know, unfortunately, with pet owners that really don't see that this is a bad thing, you know, to be neglecting, not providing the, the proper necessities to your pet. Uh, you know, sometimes we're never just going to change their minds on that, but maybe uh, a stricter fine, maybe a higher fine, maybe more penalties might deter. 
you, you wonder, right? Because if someone is willing to be yeah. cruel or callous to a, an animal, pet or otherwise, you wonder what kind of deterrent to find would bring to bear. But I totally get your point because we've seen so many and heard so many stories where whoever that has a pet that treats them so poorly, you wonder whether or not the, that mindset can be changed with a fine and whether or not they even pay. But I completely understand and get your point. Kelly, for folks who'd like to help out the folks at Faith Saving Animal Shelter, whether it be with supplies or energy and effort, a bit of elbow grease, what would you like to say? Well, we are uh, uh, always open to people coming down and volunteering. We reach out to our community. We have this community is amazing. Uh, like, I could put a shout out for something. I mean, whether it's food, which I did there a few weeks ago. My goodness, like I, I went down to the shelter and it took me about three hours just to pack away the food. The people are just absolutely unbelievable. Um, and uh, so uh, we rely on them. We rely on the whole community as a whole. Um, but uh, people uh, also send us monetary donations, and our, uh, they can go onto our website. Our email address is there. They can volunteer their time, and they can message us for that as well. And uh, we accept just about everything. We accept supplies, food, uh, like I said, monetary donations, whatever whatever they're willing to give. We're appreciative of everything. I appreciate your time here this morning. Uh, good luck to you, Kelly. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to uh, showcase our shelter. We, we do appreciate it. Our pleasure. Take care of yourself. Okay. Okay, you bye-bye. Okay. It's Kelly Packard from Faith's Haven Animal Shelter in Wabush. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Derek Butler. He's the executive director at the Association of Seafood Producers. On to, good morning, Derek. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. So I think you'd like to react to some of the comments offered by FFAW President Keith Sullivan earlier in the program. Where do we start? Uh, you know, Patty, it's a, it's a tough industry. Let me start with that. And there's days you don't, it's not for the faint of heart, as someone has said before me. And you don't just need, some days though you need extra doses of gravel and there's not enough gravel in the world. You know, we have to tell the truth. That's number one principle in this. We have endeavored as an association representing the members who produce crab in the province. In response to some of what Mr. Sullivan got on with this morning, we have endeavored for weeks to have the discussions with DFO, with the provincial minister, Minister Bragg, and his officials, with the FAW, and with my members about how we pace ourselves, how we ensure our workers get a day off who have not had time off since Easter, how we pace and structure the fishery to ensure optimal quality, and that we pace ourselves in respect of the market and everything in the business. And we have been met instead with an obsession, a literal obsession on the part of Mr. Sullivan, to land the crab as fast as possible, to the point, Patty, your, your, your listeners will be intrigued by this, to the point where his solution to our challenges is ship the crab out, get it to the Maritimes, send it elsewhere. His, his solution for workers who are tired is I'll give you less work, let's open up another fish plant, or ship the crab to the Maritimes so you get less hours. It's a bit rich, and people need to understand he has been an obstacle to our efforts to structure this fishery for the best performance. And that is that needs to be stated in response to some of the things that he was prepared to say on the radio this morning, which are simply not accurate. Okay, what, what do you say to the harvester who could not get out and get any more of their crab quota, and then all of a sudden the price dropped based on a review of the, the analysis? And so 760 went to 615. They were ready, willing, and able to go get the crab, but they couldn't, and now what? So what do you say to those folks who have lost significant revenue simply because of the volatility of the price and the market? So, so the market prices will change. They used to change every two weeks. They changed every week once upon a time, and now they will change in natural relationship to the marketplace. 
The FAW has the prerogative to push to seek increases, and we have the prerogative when the market is down, which the FAW acknowledged. We can't keep buying crab at a price higher than what the market supports, and that has been our challenge at the 760 level. Um, the quota increase, the landed value this year, will be more than it was last year, even at the lower price. Now, remember, last year we started at 573. We ended at 760. This year we started at 760. The market's gone the other way. We're now at 615. To the point where the harvesters, Keith is prepared to say, nobody's fished yet. Harvesters haven't fished. People aren't fishing. Well, I checked with the membership, and he knows this because we, we addressed it in the reconsideration hearing this past week or, or last weekend, whatever it was. Uh, I checked. I know of, well, one company hasn't started because of ice and snow. Different issue. That's not my fault, I hope. Uh, we know of another instance in a company, one of the larger ones, where a company or a boat was on dry dock. Not the company's fault, not Derek Butler's fault. In every other instance where harvesters have expressed a wish to fish, they have fished. And yes, we all want to pace ourselves. We can schedule. There are trip limits in both the collector agreement and in DFO. But I don't think harvesters have not had a chance to fish. But we do want to pace ourselves for our workers and for landings, for ice, forklifts, and the rest of it. Um, and to that point, Patty, we're at 50% plus of the quota in. Today is middle of May. Where's the problem? But Keith's idea is, well, let's send it to the Maritimes then. Harvesters need to fish fast, hard, get it in, and he wouldn't meet, he wouldn't discuss it, and said he couldn't. Politically, he's nipped up. He doesn't want to. What, what is the risk of nudging up against the malt and the soft shell? When do people anticipate that will happen? Because that's a concern brought forward by some harvesters. Your position. And that's a fair concern, and that's always been a concern in crab. When we had meat production years ago, it wasn't so much of a concern. We had fisheries that took place much later. But in the sections market, because of the yield factors, uh, yes, you want to land the fish before the crab, before it has that, that soft shell and that molting issue. And that hits, that starts to hit about now, I guess, but more principally in June and later in July and certainly after that. That's why DFO, the resource manager, um, has the fishery open until into July because that allows for harvesters to catch the quota. We have not failed to land the quota in crab in Newfoundland, even when it was well above the level it's at now, and we've never failed to process it. Harvesters will have ample opportunity in the season in front of us. There might be individual exceptions, but harvesters will have ample opportunity, as they have in the past, to land up to 130 million pounds of crab when the quota was that high before the season closes. So I understand why a plant would like to keep the entirety of the quota that they're processing, snow crab or otherwise. So what's your position on the proposal coming from St. Mary's? So our concern here is we shouldn't be following an annual data signal. So yes, the quotas are up. We've had two years of increases, but it will go back down, Patty. And then those workers who need 14 weeks. Now, remember, workers need 14 weeks to qualify for EI and a certain number of hours, 400 plus. And you need workers. It's a seasonal business. It's the nature of the beast. And then they will have support through through the year for income on EI. Harvesters get one trip, EI. And they get two claims, actually. It's unique in, in, the, in the country. They get two claims for two trips of EI for the year. So our workers need time. They need hours. And we, we, it's hard to get workers. We're going to labor challenge, labor crunch. We're bringing in foreign workers. If we uh, have more fish plants, and it's easy to open one, and then two, and then three, and so goes our history. And then when the resource turns back down, we won't have hours enough to give our workers, and they won't qualify for EI, and then we'll lose, work, lose workers. Is our rural development plan to, to bring in Filipinos? Well, if that's the case, we can close down the industry and take the, take the money to run the resources or to manage the resources and go to the Philippines and do foreign aid. That's not where we need workers. Let's bring them in. 
But the strategy should not be to build infrastructure for foreign workers, and then when the quota turns down, say to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, sorry, you don't have enough hours. Why are we bringing in uh, workers from outside the country? Is it as simple as can't find locals to take the job, whether it be the number of hours or jeopardizes some other revenue stream they have coming? What's going on? It's the demographic hit, and I guess the revenue stream as well for some who can't, who you know, find other opportunities. But fundamentally, Newfoundland and Labrador uh, has not gotten over the demographic hit of the Cotton Moratorium. So we just don't have people. We've got an aging workforce. We've got the lowest, well, you've probably heard me say it before, Patty, on your show. We've gone from the highest birth rate and the youngest population in Canada to the oldest population and the lowest birth rate. Uh, that's not going to be fixed overnight. That's going to take time. Minister Byrne is doing his best, but it's just going to take time. And that has an impact with everybody, not just the fishery or the processing sector. What do you think the average age is of plant workers? I don't know the number, but it's got to be well into the 50s, if not early 60s. So just think about that now. Workers working at that age, and there's some of our best workers because they've been at it for so long, but it is difficult work. Um, They've been at it now since Easter without a break. And the union solution is, well, let's take a bit more crab to the Maritimes or take it out somewhere else so you can get a break, rather than work with us to pace our landings to ensure we've got top quality and that our workers get sensible hours. Appreciate the time this morning, Derek. You've had the last word. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Derek Butler. He's the executive director at the Association of Seafood Producers. Okay, uh, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. You know who you are. All of the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters, you are all right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.